How many uh, middle school parents in the room? You have a middle school offspring. Excellent. See, it's already comfy. It is comfy in here. I like the living room ness. The only reason I have to wear a mic is they're recording this for whatever reason. Um, and so I need to do that. But hey, it's good to be with you guys tonight. Um, Jeff Sample asked me a while back to uh, come and teach you guys. Many of you, I see our parents, uh, as you just raise your hand, many of you are middle school parents. Uh, but even if you're not, my desire is that we can still glean some stuff from just looking at some, some different texts and batches of passages in God's Word. Um, so I want to go ahead and jump in. I have a lot of material. But anyway, back uh, a couple of months ago when Jeff explained uh, what he wanted this summer to be, just kind of specifically tackling some different uh, different issues and having some, some lessons to some different bents, uh, he asked me, as you would assume, uh, to do something youthy and youth culture-y and parenty uh, and, and all of that good stuff. And so I'm going to take a stab at doing that. It's, it's a little bit different than what I normally do and how I'm used to doing things. I usually take a text and study it and, and teach that text. This is more, I guess, lecture, if you will. Um, but I do want to look at things that uh, apply to everyone. Uh, and they don't just apply to you know just the middle school parents. They don't apply just to um, parents in general, but they apply to everyone. But um, again, a specific goal that I have is certainly in your uh, in your parenting parenting to give you a a glimpse into some of these things. Um, I want to hop right in by saying this: in almost every piece of literature that I send out that has my name on it, and almost every email I write you guys, I usually allude to something you know having to do with the fact of the concept that parenting is hard, um, and it is. And uh, I get that because I know your kids. <laughs> in in many ways, trust me. For 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 many of you, I know it's harder than others. Um, but I honestly mean that when I say I know your kids and so I know that parenting is hard. I know the kind of questions that they are asking. I know the type of things that they're faced with. I know the type of things they're going through. Um, and I know for many of you who are for the first time maybe parents of, you know, the age group that I work with or high school or even, you know, that fourth and fifth grade when things are just starting to, you know, explode. I know that that is a hard thing. Um, I speak from experience not yet as a parent myself. The hardest thing I've been faced with is dressing my six-month-old, and that is tough. They put buttons in weird places, and they kick around, and that, that's been the, about the, the gist of the hardest thing I've had to deal with yet as a parent. But by experience, I mean as I've talked with your students and as I've talked with you guys, it is a hard task. Um, I know your kids, and I, I study your kids, and I understand that. And so what I want to do, I have a basic goal tonight of painting kind of this broad picture um, of three elements that I believe not only shape youth culture um, overall, uh, but specifically your kids, these kids, this demographic, Gracie Van, um, as obviously that's my ministry context and that's who I know. I want to show you these three elements and um, how it's something that shape uh, who these kids are and, and, and who they're becoming. And so basically I want to humbly, again, humbly, um, offer to you guys some ideas for how we can affect that shaping um, in a positive manner. And I will go ahead and give you this forewarning. I'm not a guy who is about shock factor, and I'm not here to scare you. You know, chances are your kid's smoking weed right now in the junior high room. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to give you da- hard, dangerous statistics that scare you. Oh, we got to go home and flee to Canada or whatever. Stay with the alms relatives or whatever. Um, I'm, not, I'm not about that. 
Um, I have a philosophy that, yes, parenting is hard, and I believe it's increasingly more difficult. I believe that technology is a catalyst that makes it more difficult. But um, I'm a guy who also believes it's always been bad. Um, since Adam and Eve, it's been bad. Jesus grew up uh, down the street from a town called Beth Shan, um, which had everything from prostitution to idol worship to, you know, sex was glorified, money was glorified. So it's always been bad. Um, it gets harder, I know, but I'm not a guy who wants to throw out these statistics and say, oh, you know, we're losing. God, where are you? What are we doing? It's always been bad, um, and I know it's difficult. So what I want to do is address some of those things, and how I've decided to do that is basically take some excerpts from um, three different series that I've done with your kids um, or with, with the middle school kids back in there, and I'm basically going to kind of piece those together um, and try to catch you up to speed on some things that I'm communicating and telling them uh, try to kind of flip that inside out, bring it up to a parenting level, if you will, just to kind of give you guys uh, some insight. And so what I want to do, I want to begin looking at this last concept that I've listed in my title. I had to come up with a title, and this is the title I came up with, How Money, Media, and Mediocrity Shape Youth Culture. That's a broad title. Uh, that's a lot of things that I have to look at. Um, basically, that's 13 weeks of teaching material that I have uh, 23 minutes to do. So understand that will be broad, but if nothing else, let it spur questions um, that maybe you dialogue with your spouse or your kids or even me. You have cards that uh, Karen Lively so lovely passed out. Two weeks from tonight, me and Will Savell will kind of do a Q&A um, session, if you will. So ask questions about anything. Um, you know, maybe not personal or anything, but any questions you want to do? And then I think you slip them in the magic box. Tips are welcome as well right here, <laughs> whatever you feel led to do. But I want to begin by looking at this last title uh, or this last word in this title, mediocrity, um, because I believe that's where one of the biggest problems lies in looking at youth culture in general and with looking at our kids uh, that we deal with here um, at Grace. And listen, I'm not speaking stereotypically against a younger generation spouting off, oh, they're so lazy, they're mediocre, they have no drive, you know, all these kids with their devil music and their tattoos and their piercings and tobacco. All I'm not speaking about a culture stereotypically like that. What I mean uh, by mediocrity is this. In many ways, this youth culture um, has more drive than ever. In many ways, they do, and that's a positive thing. What I'm suggesting is that the drive is oftentimes it's either misdirected uh, or it's not tapped into for the cause of Christ, uh, which is why we exist. So the first thing I do want to look at is this. Mediocrity shapes youth culture, and here's what I mean by that. When, and, and when I refer to youth culture uh, in this context here tonight, basically I want to do that uh, kind of in a, a Christian youth culture context, you know, thinking the Bible Belt youth group, you know, Bible-believing kids here. So when I reference that, at least in this context, I mean that. Um, this youth culture believes this basically about Christianity. If you pretty much get by by following a list of rules, um, if you generally blend in, don't stick out too much one way or the other, uh, if you don't go to hell when you die, then you pretty much got it. You pretty much got the Christianity thing and you're good to go. And guys, what I see, what I'm addressing is the mediocrity of basically a theology of teens that says this, eh, Christianity, uh, yeah, why not? You know, it seems like a decent belief system. It's a belief system that seems to have some decent, decent ethics, uh, some decent beliefs. So yeah, why not? Guys, the very mediocrity that I think drives an entire generation 
uh, of youth. Here's what it's done. It's seeped into the church. It's seeped into our youth culture as a church. And, and what happens is when this is a teen's only understanding of the true call of the gospel, the real gospel and authentic faith, and it's something that is called authentic discipleship, it gets skewed, it gets distorted, and changes into something that it was never meant to be. I'll illustrate a case of um, what a heart of mediocrity can lead to uh, by telling you about a man named Demas. I don't know if you're familiar with Demas. Um, Demas was a close friend and a travel companion of Paul. So Demas, here's this guy, he's a new convert, he's basically just on fire for the gospel, he's passionate for the gospel, he leaves his home, he leaves his family, he leaves his friends, he leaves comfort behind to kind of go on this missionary journey with Paul into this deeper discipleship, and he's just on fire for the gospel. He's just a stud. Then we come across a a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and listen to verse 10, it says, Paul's writing this obviously, and it says, for Demas... In love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. How did this guy go from passionate, you know, just on fire for the gospel, right behind Paul, leaving all these things, seems to have this mark of true authentic faith. How does he go from passionate to deserter? How does that happen? Here's what I've told your children. Here's what I'll tell you. It wasn't immediate. What it was is it was gradual. And that's the thing about worldliness. That's the thing... Uh, about being anchored and planted in this temporal place is that it begins in the soul and it begins in the heart. Now, guys, as I dialogue with your kids, um, be it at Fall Creek Falls around a fire, you know, be it on a Wednesday as I'm teaching and afterwards they ask me something, as I'm dialoguing with your kids and trying to figure out and get in their head and ask them, why is, is your culture as Christian youth, why is it mediocre? You know, is it, is it, I mean, do we, can we write it off to just, oh, well, they're just not there yet. They're just not mature. Just got to give them some time. Where, where, where's kind of the disconnect? And there's three things that I'm going to put up on the screen that I want you to get that I usually find, um, just as I've done this job for, for several years. And as I've talked to these students, here's the three things usually that I run across, um, when trying to expose kind of just this, this heart of mediocrity, um, towards what the gospel really is. The first thing that I normally see and the thing that our culture certainly has made no easier on the church is this, a desensitization towards sin. Paul, in the uh, fourth chapter of Ephesians, as he's writing, I believe he addresses this um, specifically uh, to God's people. Listen to something that he says in Ephesians 4. I'm going to read verse uh, 18 through 24 real quick. Follow along if you've got your Bibles. If not, you can just listen up. This is Paul writing. He says this, They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Here's the part I want you to get in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Because what I see, something that shapes and, and draws your kids in this culture towards a, a mediocre faith is basically this. It's, it's being desensitized to what the effects of sin have done to this world. Perfect example is this. If you walked out Monday morning, I walked out Monday morning and did a backflip because it was 90 degrees. Well, why is that? 90 degrees seemed cool to me 
Why is that? Because this month in Memphis, we've been desensitized to what cool really is. So all of a sudden, 90, hey, that feels great. That's cool. Well, think about 90 in November. That would be insanely hot. Because it's a perfect illustration to what our culture has pushed and squeezed and molded. Not only general culture, but church culture into that. Is that many times for our kids, sin's not that big of a deal anymore. It doesn't take much. I mean, go through the checkout line at the Target. Um, ladies, take your uh, daughters to shop for swimsuits. Um, turn the TV on. It doesn't take much to realize um, that the world is squeezing us and pushing us, and we are more and more becoming desensitized to um, really the, the gravity of what sin is and what it's done to this place. In that same vein, something else that it leads to is I'm talking with your students is what I've discovered is this. They're setting the bar of holiness much too low. And here's what I mean by that. I normally see our kids, and here's how they judge if they're, if they're Christian or not. And better than the dude in sixth grade, you know, sixth period science. You know, I'm not doing this. I'm not smoking this. I'm not drinking this. I don't watch this. So I'm probably a Christian because I'm better than these people or this guy. Guys, all that is is a misunderstanding of the gospel. It's a misunderstanding of, of how... Uh, badly and how deeply sin truly has affected each and every one of us. I've listed this text in 1 Peter that you're probably familiar with. Read along with me if you have it in the first chapter. Listen to these. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is another element that I think pushes our kids, squeezes our kids into a mold of mediocrity. They go, if I'm not doing this and not doing that, I'm pretty good. The bar of holiness here is here. And when we understand the gospel, when we understand our own sin, when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to that, we see that the the bar of holiness is there. Guys, it's important that as parents um, and as teachers of the Word that we live out a life and we teach our kids um, that sin still is a big deal. You know, as I'm in a, a ministry that, that moves kids into a next phase of life, which is high school, that is something they have to tell them, that as you get in, that affects purity and that affects dating, that affects cheating, that affects how you respect others, that respect that, that affects the, uh, the truth of the non-truth that you tell your parents, that sin is still a big deal. God's Word still calls it a big deal. Last thing I want to look at before I move on here for Tom's sake is this. One thing that moves your students towards a place of mediocrity in their faith uh, and, and overall is this, a misunderstanding of God's call and a misunderstanding of God's plan. You see, here's what, for the most part, I see a Christian youth culture do. They think of the gospel in terms of, uh, I can sign up for it and I don't want to go to hell, so I'll just sign up for it and try to get by. Guys, when, when students think of the call of the gospel, when they think of Christianity as kind of a grocery list, you know, uh, list of, of, of do's and don'ts, what they do is totally miss out that we're created, as this text I'm going to read in Ephesians says, that we're created by the Almighty God as His workmanship, you know, created and designed to live under His rule. That's a huge thing that we get, and that's a glorious fact that's supposed to motivate holy living. It's supposed to motivate this fire uh, of, of being not mediocre. Uh, 
not make us half half-hearted towards that claim. That's something that oftentimes students don't get when they don't understand God's call. Listen, you're familiar with this text in Ephesians 2:10 as it says this, "For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them." When our students miss that, uh, what happens is they have this misunderstanding that Christianity is, is, is do's and don'ts. And they don't understand that this is why we are created. You know, through, uh, through redemption, through Christ Jesus, we are, we're all of a sudden set free to live under God's rule. And that's a glorious fact. And I have a, 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 um, a great job in trying to, to sell that and convince them of that. But ultimately, it's only the Holy Spirit that, that convinces them of that. Um, before I move on, practically speaking... Um, so that I don't just leave you going, okay, well, so what about these things? How do we do it? What do we do? What, how do we combat um, this mediocrity um, amongst confessing, believing teens? Well, guys, the first way is this, and it comes at a high cost um, to our families. And it comes to, uh, at a high cost to uh, the way we spend our time. And it comes to a high cost to the way we spend our money. And it comes to a high cost to the things that we value. Um, it's this, it's showing our kids that we desire uh, more than the mediocre. And uh, there's a myth out there that says, oh, once they reach eight, you know, you have no influence on them and, you know, you just got to let them go do their own thing. Guys, I've done this job for a while and I think that's a big myth. Um, you still influence your students. I don't care if they're in high school or if they're in college. Even. You still have an enormous impact um, over your students. And so that is the first important way that we combat that, that we desire as parents more than just mediocre. And yeah, hey, we're going to fail. We are. We're going to fail. Um, this isn't, you know, bootstrap Christianity, you know, uh, tactic that calls us to this rigid kind of legalism in the home and, you know, perfection. The gospel tells us that's not going to happen. But guys, will your kids see in you a genuine, consistent understanding and a desire to live out the gospel? You know, if you're familiar with the passage in Luke 14, when Jesus basically, a lot of followers are coming, hey, you know, what can we do? We want to sign up for this thing. How do we follow you? And he goes, okay, that sounds good. It's pretty easy. Um, you got to hate your parents and hate your mother and uh, hate your own life and basically lose everything, uh, you know, take up your own cross and follow me. How does that sound? What I want to challenge us to do is do our students, you know, do, do your children, See that the desire of your home and the desire of your heart is to live out uh, that call in Luke 14. Okay, so that is sort of the problem, if you will. Obviously, sin is the root problem. But that is sort of the problem that makes our kids, I think, such an easy target um, for these next two things that I'm going to address. is just this overall spirit of, eh, I just need to get by. So the next two things I want to look at. The first is this. Um, money shapes youth culture. And obviously you understand what I mean. Money, it's not just money, the green stuff, the backed by gold, but it's the worship, um, the importance that our world at large places on money itself uh, and the ends that it can you know, achieve. That's what I'm addressing, obviously. Um, hunched over his desk uh, was, was Thomas Jefferson uh, when he was kind of at the... Uh, in, in the, the prime of his, you know, career and doing the, the great things he did for our country, hunched over his desk, here's Thomas Jefferson, the Thomas Jefferson, with a little knife in his hand, uh, and he has the Bible. And what he's doing, he's basically carefully cutting away at pages of Scripture. And here's what he's doing. He's cutting out stuff, and he's constructing a Bible that's kind of more to his liking. 
you know, a little bit softer, um, easy to understand, not conflictive. And he called it the Jefferson Bible. This is a true story. He called it the Jefferson Bible. Well, guys, we shudder at that, don't we? You know, we shudder at that. The arrogance that someone would take God's holy word and just blatantly take out and cut out things that uh, they didn't like. We shudder at that. That's arrogant. We know that's wrong. That's awful. However, what's humbling, as I look at this topic, um, as I look at really overall what we're addressing, when I talk to your kids, I find in my own heart, in my own flesh, I do that. I might not have a, a little pair of Fisker's scissors doing it physically, but I do that when I run across things that are hard to digest, hard to understand. And I would imagine if I was creating a, a ditto Bible, um, probably 1 John 2.15 is something that I might snip first because it's a hard, hard text to understand. And here's what it says. And I've told your, I've told your kids this. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. As we read that and we go, what does that mean? I mean, what does that mean? Is, is, is that outdated? Um, is, it, is it legalistic? I mean, does that call us to be monks? Um, that can't mean what it says it means, right? That's something very hard and conflictive that we read. It can't mean what it says it means. Well, guys, when it comes to this root issue of worldliness, and, and, and more specifically, as I'm going to look at here, of money and materialism and consumerism and affluence, when it comes to that issue, guys, we're all at risk. And as we just read about Demas, who, who was in love, as the text said, in love with this present world, guys, we see the risk that the things of this world can bring to our souls. Guys, I'll tell you this, our kids have an unbelievable amount of pressure on them. Um, they do. They have an unbelievable amount of pressure on them. And some of that's from us. Some of that's from culture. Uh, some of that's just from their own sinful heart. But they have this pressure to strive for success, um, to succeed, and basically, you know what to ultimately achieve? The American dream. And they have this pressure that's riding on them. And, and I want to say something about the American dream. Who are we de- to define what our end goal is to be? Um, you know, it, it seems like that's the creator's responsibility. And here's what we should be getting. Here's what we should be living out to teach our students is this. It's Jesus who embodied God's dream for humanity. It wasn't our founding forefathers. Uh, it's not President Obama. It was Jesus who embodied what God's dream for humanity was. And so we need to figure out things that he did, things that he said that help us make sense of all this. Guys, God saw this very topic, um, this, this love of stuff, this consumerism. He saw this very thing coming for the nation of Israel. They would go in and they would possess the land. They would become wealthy. They would forget about God and in the end basically destroy themselves. Here's what the American dream is telling your kids. Here's what the American dream tells us. Basically this, that, that you derive your identity from what you consume. Whereas God's dream tells you that you derive your identity from what he has made you to be. Guys, our students need to hear that. You see, Jesus clearly contrasted the kingdom of God with the kingdom of this world. And yet we miss that so much and even our passive consumerism. And, and here's one reason that I think that this is an issue. You know, I think that in many ways, the affluent Bible Belt American Christian student is oppressed 
You know, when we hear oppression and you think third world country, you think, you know, oh, downtown Memphis, that's oppression. Guys, here's one reason that I think that that the grip of money and consumerism and affluence and materialism, it goes ignored and it eats away at this culture like an unknowing cancer patient is because this culture has in mind that the gospel has only to do about going to heaven when you die. And we miss the part that says that we're to have a taste of heaven here and we're taught to pray that in the Lord's Prayer. You see, we're missing out. Guys, three things again um, that I've told your students and that I think our youth culture as a whole need to hear are these three things. And I want to back them up by, um, by specific text. And the first is this. This is what our students need to hear. God cares deeply about our attitude towards money, wealth, and stuff. He cares deeply about our attitude towards these things. We have a text, uh, a text in Matthew that you're probably familiar with um, that shows he's after our heart on this. You see, as I'm going to tell you in a sec, it's easy to get all black and white and go, oh, don't do this, don't do this. That's a cop-out. He cares deeply about our heart issue in that. Listen to this text out of Matthew 6. Read verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Guys, there's more said in the New Testament about money and wealth than about heaven and hell combined. Um, five times more about this issue than prayer. Almost half of Christ's parables deal with money. And here's the issue, and here's what I tell your students. I just did this a few months ago, this, this, this four-week-long series on materialism and, and just this affluence and, and, and consumerism. Here's what I told them. Throughout Scripture, God makes it clear, Jesus makes it clear that, that money and stuff in and itself um, is not evil. Uh, making a million dollars a year is not evil. Living a million dollar lifestyle because the world says you can and you should uh, and you deserve to, that's bad. You know, I'll never forget a few years ago, we, uh, we, we went to buy our first house and, you know, you got to bring them when you go to get the loan. Um, I'd ask John Roberts to loan me the money straight up, but he, he shut me down. Anyway, so when you go to the bank, you got to get the money. And, uh, you know, you get the pay stubs and this and that. And they got to check you out. And they basically give you a figure. You know, this is what we think, you know, you can afford. Go out and get the house at that much, you know. And I remember giving them the stuff and they give me the figure back. I'm like, no, no, I can't. I don't know what you're talking about. But it was a perfect illustration of them going, hey, yeah, yeah, you can easily afford this. You know, go for it. See, guys, God cares deeply about our heart issue, uh, or he cares deeply about our hearts when it comes to this issue. And that's something that I try to communicate to your to your students well. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's a cop-out for me to tell you that blank is bad, um, you know, or you can buy this but not buy this. It's, it's, it's a cop-out because the Lord desires your heart. He desires the tensions uh, and the wrestling that our love for the world sometimes wrestles with our willingness um, for discipleship. That is what He ultimately desires. Guys, the second thing that I've taught uh, your students and that I have to remind myself of is this. Stuff holds us back from satisfaction in Christ alone. I want to read you a quote from a book I was reading uh, not long ago. Listen to this. It says, In ancient Rome, crowds by the tens of thousands would gather in the Colosseum to watch as Christians were torn apart by wild animals. Paul Rader, commenting on his visit to this famous landmark, said, Listen, this is a guy standing in the middle of the Colosseum. I stood uncovered to the heavens above. 
where he sits for whom they gladly died and asked myself, would I, could I die for him tonight to get this gospel to the ends of the earth? Raider continued, I prayed most fervently in that Roman arena for the spirit of a martyr and for the working of the Holy Spirit in my heart as he worked in Paul's heart and when he brought him on his handcuffed way to Rome. Those early Christians, I love this, listen, lived on the threshold of heaven within a heartbeat of home, no possessions to hold them back. That sounds kind of nice. That sounds kind of refreshing because God's possessions and money and stuff, as necessary as they are, they sometimes hold us back. Don't you see that in your own life? Don't you see that in your offspring's life? Guys, we are called to embody an attitude that tells us and that shows us and that proves and tells the world that we don't really have a home here. I love this text out of Hebrews chapter 13 that reads this. Listen to Hebrews 13, 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Listen, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Guys, last thing before I move on very quickly, because I want to get you guys out of here, is this. This is something that, that we don't get, and our kids certainly don't at times, is this, that we're called the risk, not comfort. See, Christ calls us to take risk for kingdom purposes, and almost every message that American culture sends is the exact opposite. Maximize comfort here. Maximize security here. Guys, there's a text in Luke 12 that I love. And basically, Jesus here, Jesus, he's addressing some scared new converts. He's addressing these saints, and they're about to go on this, this missionary journey. And here's what he tells them in Luke 12:4. Listen to this. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that, have nothing more that they can do. He basically says this. The worst they can do is kill you. That's risk. These people about to go out for the first time, these new converts, he goes, don't worry about it. Worst, worst possible scenario, they rip your head off. You know, not a big deal. Guys, it's, it's getting hard, isn't it? To apply this and to bring this home to, okay, so, so how do we model our lives in a way that paints this correct picture for our kids on the way that our world has skewed and overvalued money? How do we do that? Um, again, that's not something that I, can draw out and put on a PowerPoint presentation because, again, it's a cop-out for me to tell you blank is bad and blank is okay, etc. Again, the Lord desires your heart and the tensions that, as redeemed people, you feel and you wrestle with. C.S. Lewis, which we all love, has this quote, and I love this. It says this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Simple question is this, are we pointing our kids to that world? Are we pointing our kids to that world or are we pointing them here and saying, dig in, you know, this is as good as it gets right here. That's a humbling, hard call um, that we have to make. Very quickly, because I know I'm already out of time, so I'm going to really, really, really fly through this next thing. Um, I want to put this... Uh, in the perspective that media shapes this youth culture, and you know that probably media is a enormous part of your child's life. And even if you have the most strict and rigid regulations over what they can and can't hear or watch or read, etc., they're affected by it. If you get nothing else, get that they are affected by it um, because their friends are um, or their schools are. They are affected by it, and as a result of that fact, here's what I want to propose: as believing parents, we must biblically approach. 
a popular culture um, as a means to discipling our children. As a means to discipling our children. Guys, here's, here's, a hard, here's what a really hard, hard thing is for us to do. Um, because here's what media does a good job of doing. They do a good job of telling us and telling your kids what to think and what to value and what to worship. Um, one of the most obvious ways that it does that is through advertising. Um, I spent a whole Sunday just looking at advertising with your kids. And billions and billions of dollars are spent every year by manufacturers just getting to know your kids. Because um, that's the most heavily targeted demographic you know, in the world. Um, they know what they're watching on TV and when they're watching it, and they know what they're wearing. I mean, they're deciding what they wear, basically. They know what medium gets to them the best. Um, perfect illustration, how many of you have middle school sons who load up on Axe body spray or some other nasty stuff of that sort? We go on a junior high trip, and it just, it's, a, it's a fog of just <laughs> nastiness. They, they think that, you know, we don't have to shower for four to five days and this is just going to get the chicks. And they do. But perfect illustration is these commercials, if you've ever seen, they're very sexually driven. And basically the message is this of the ad. Spray this on and a, a very fine looking female is going to want to uh, have sex with you. That's, that's basically the gist of the ads. That's just as blunt as I can put it. Our guys buy into that. They really do. I mean, every trip I go to, I mean, they unload. You know, there might be three pair of boxers, but there's six cans of Axe Body Spray. Because they go, if I spray this on, the ad tells me if I spray this on, you know, that's going to get me good luck. It is. I'm going to get a female by doing that. Guys, there's so many ways, and again, I've had to, I've had to, to uh, whittle this down a little bit because of time. But guys, there's so many ways that TV and that movies and that music, et cetera, speak into uh, and shape this youth culture and ultimately your kids. I'm going to leave you quickly with two things, uh, and I'm going to skip over this. I was just going to show you some statistics. That's not important. I'm going to leave you with two things um, that I think that we can do as parents that will help shape this area of our kids' lives. And the first is this, do your homework. Um, Basically, all I mean is this. I know it's hard. I know you have, you know, 16 other kids. And between lacrosse and homework, you know, you're doing good to remember where you live. I understand that. Um, Take advantage of resources that maybe I've given out. Um, Flip through channels, maybe things that they're watching or you think they are or think they're not even. Um, Go to the movies that they're talking about or they're seeing. Read the magazines that they're buying in the checkout line at Schnooks with your money. Um, Guys, we're called... Uh, as believers, and especially as believing parents, um, to understand our world. Um, we're called to do that so that we speak into it redemptively. Um, do your homework. Lastly, and I'll let you out of here, is this. Take advantage of opportunities to dialogue about these things with your kids. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, they won't listen. Oh, they don't care. Oh, they're going to roll the eyes. Oh, you don't get it. You don't love. You don't even know our kids. We can't do that. Um, guys, I'm oftentimes in ministry blown away and surprised at how the Holy Spirit can use something that you don't think is connecting, that you don't think is getting through, um, but some nugget of truth pops up months, years, decades down the road that you've instilled. Take advantage of a trapped audience, you know, on the way to soccer or they're in your home. They're, that's a trapped audience right there. Take advantage of that while you have that. Um, that quickly leaves. Um, Take advantage of opportunities to dialogue and discuss these things, you know, from this biblical perspective. Let me close. Sorry to rush on that last one, but I want to get you guys out of here. Guys, as believing parents, uh, we have two goals. Uh, as, as parents, it's to properly disciple our kids. Hopefully that's the, de- the desire of your heart. As believers, it's this. It's to redemptively approach 
the world in which we live for the sake of Christ. Uh, Fulfilling our call to be citizens of God's kingdom uh, in an earthly kingdom, it's not an easy thing for us to do. And you know what? That's evidenced by these three things that I've looked at because I feel these tensions and these struggles in my own life uh, and your kids feel them and they struggle with these things as well. Guys, one great way that we can fulfill our calling as believers is to be parents who desire to truly see their kids have a heart for the Lord. And guys, that takes time and it takes patience and it takes a genuine desire on our own for righteousness. But guys, in a fallen world that skewed these three areas that we've examined and so many other things, um, guys, may we beg that the Holy Spirit use us as parents to understand our kids and to speak into our kids' lives um, just these kids who we've been entrusted with to disciple. Um, may we beg for the Holy Spirit's power to do that. So let me pray for us quickly and again. Um, I know that was broad. I hate the rush there, but uh, hopefully that painted a, a, a good broad picture for you. Let me pray and then I'll get you out of here. Father, we're thankful for, um, Lord, just the, the variety of ways in which your word offers us counsel. Um, Lord, this thing that we are attempting to do is hard. Um, just in, in half an hour, we've uncovered just the, the tip of the iceberg of things that pull not only at our own hearts, but at our kids' hearts that we, that we cherish and we love. Lord, we understand that apart from your grace, um, we are no better than anything out there. No religious system, no person. Uh, we understand that. Lord, I pray that as parents and as believing parents especially, that you give us the wisdom, the desire, the patience, um, to do just what we've addressed, to disciple our kids, to speak into a world that is broken and fallen so that ultimately we see our kids living out a life uh, in which you've called them to live and designed them to live. Lord, we thank you for your word uh, and how it ministers to your people. We don't even deserve to have it, and yet you've spoken to us clearly. We thank you, and we know that we can ask these things only in Jesus' name. Amen.